Father in heaven, we do rest and glory in your name, your holy name, and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has kept us unto a great salvation to be fully revealed in due time. And of course, we well know that though we've been blessed so greatly as your children already, or more blessings yet remain, and uh, when we're caught up to be with him in glory, uh, we shall have that great gift presented so fully. And yet, even in eternity, Father, we expect to be enjoying and learning and growing in our uh, understanding, really, of the precious word of grace and how blessed we truly are in our Lord Jesus. So, Father, thank you so much for encouraging us by uh, the word of truth today and throughout the week. There have been many uh, times when we turned our minds and hearts away to look at these affairs in the world, and that has been disappointing, sometimes quite uh, discouraging, and we see things happening we've never uh, wanted and certainly didn't pray for uh, in the world and yet heavenly battles do have earthly consequences and so father we see many things happening some perhaps indicating great changes in the world order and yet we know that there will be great changes in due time uh father i Praise your name for the requests that have been offered up and the praises made. Father, we praise you for how hearts have been changed and minds regarding the current circumstances we live in here in this country with uh, the COVID threat, it seems, being lifted greatly and other consequences of how the government has responded to that threat also changing. So, Father, I do pray that you'd use these changes to bless our people. I pray that many would come to realize what the truth is regarding these uh, who seek to control our people through force and intimidation and uh, uh, taking advantage politically of things that really our great uh, crises uh, that have come upon us from a far place. So, Father, I just pray that you would enlighten many and raise up leaders who would dare to speak boldly truth. Father, we're so thankful for our opportunity to gather here this morning. I pray that you'd open your word for us again and that we'd be greatly blessed. And we would thank you, Father, in Christ's name and amen. Okay, well, again, we have this great privilege to open God's word together. As I already said, we're looking forward next time to finish up this second theme. The first theme in Genesis that we considered was how the inspiration of Genesis is revealed in all of the New Testament authors, all of them comment on Genesis and its inspired account of how the Lord God has sovereignly worked. 
starting with the creation and certainly proceeding from there to raise up a people and ultimately to bring great blessing to them in due time. Most of that blessing still has not occurred, but certainly God has made many, many promises to them. And we see that reflected on the pages of Genesis and the New Testament authors all give credence to that so boldly. So that's the first great theme in Genesis. The second being the sovereignty of God and how it's reflected on nearly every line, certainly on every page in that great introductory book. Genesis, the book of beginnings, and yet so much there points forward, some points forward to the very end of the redemptive plan of God, of course. Um, so we've learned so much already and been blessed so greatly here. Um, it's interesting that it will be seven lessons altogether <laughs> to cover the subject of God's uh, sovereign work in uh the lives of the patriarchs and uh, how this great work was done often very independently of their own obedience, their own commitment to the Lord, which varied greatly from time to time, place to place. And yet uh, God worked sovereignly uh, in their hearts and minds. And we'll see today how that uh, developed there as we get close to the end of that story there in the book of Genesis. So I've, I've been really encouraged, I have to say again, uh, restudying this in preparation for our Sunday morning meetings. <clears throat> our subject today is how the Lord God provided a testimony to Jacob. I, I certainly focused on this last time as well. Today, what I'd like to do is finish the story there, how the Lord God provided a testimony to Jacob. I mean, in the very words I've just used to entitle this, you can see the sovereignty of God revealed, of course. The Lord God provided a testimony for Jacob. There are two parts to this. One part is where we will spend all of our time and then at the end just uh, set the stage for next time. But So most of our time today will be spent on seeing how the Lord provided a testimony to Jacob, but only through hard times. Yes, he gave him a testimony, but only through hard times. And then, reflecting how hard the times would be, <laughs> how the Lord allowed Joseph, <laughs> who was right in the center of God's plan for Israel, right? How the Lord would allow Joseph to be sold into slavery. To be sold into slavery in Egypt but with the blessing of protection from his own brethren. How, how the Lord used slavery for Joseph 
to protect him from his own brethren that wanted to kill him. Most of them did want to kill their brother, Joseph. Wow. So such a great sovereign work of the Lord God is revealed on these final pages in Genesis. So first of all, the Lord provides Jacob a testimony, but only through hard times. We've already seen much of this revealed in the last uh, few studies here in this subject. Um, we certainly have learned something about Jacob. He's distinguished, really, from his father, Isaac, in that father, his father, Isaac, remember, his father's great experience of redemption was on a mountain called Moriah, where he was offered up as a sacrifice in the heart of his father, in the mind of his father, right, who had been commanded to offer up his son as a burnt offering. Isaac lived through that and was saved, delivered, right? by God providing himself a sacrifice, right? And uh, Isaac goes on in his life to live longer than his father or his sons. Isaac would live 180 years. And during that time, he would mostly dwell <clears throat> from place to place in the land of promise and was distinguished, therefore, as he dwelt there by his well digging <laughs> and uh, we saw how that went right but of course most of it isn't revealed <clears throat> there's not much about isaac found in genesis <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> there's not much <clears throat> found about isaac in genesis will my voice endure we don't know well i may have to ask one of you to take over so Isaac was a digger of wells, while Jacob, on the other hand, was a builder of altars. And we see that revealed clearly in Genesis 26, verse 25. It, it states that contrast. I didn't make that up when I said the great theme of Isaac's life was his well digging, but the great theme of Jacob's was his altar building. I didn't make it up. Genesis 26, verse 25 says, And he builded an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. Uh, and there Isaac's servants digged a well. So Jacob built an altar there where Isaac's servants had dug a well. You see how clearly that's revealed. Okay, so the contrast is clear. So it would be right, I would think, to ask this question. It's, it's really a very important one. What is the significance of all of these altars that Jacob built and rebuilt, right? Uh, and uh, considering that Jacob was in a trial of soul and spirit as they were being built, across that land that had been promised to him, right? What was their significance? Well, let us say it this way. They were in Jacob's mind, his personal response to the sovereign work of the Lord God in his life. 
Jacob memorialized the sovereign work of the Lord God in his life by building altars and sacrificing unto the Lord. That's rather significant, is it not? <laughs> Have we ever done this? <laughs> no. Well, perhaps in other ways, at least we should, right? Should very often take note of how the Lord God has intersected with our lives, right? Because the miracles that God has done in our lives deserve to be remembered and memorialized in our families, right? And uh, that at least our families should know well and others too, as we share our testimony openly, right? So now there are a number of aspects in which uh, Jacob uh, responded personally by building altars. And uh, a lot of, of it has to do with, first of all, the recognition of Jacob's own condition before the Lord. He was a marked man, in other words, a man marked by God himself as one not worthy and yet called by God to lead a nation through trials that would always be his own lot. So Jacob's lot was to suffer, uh, and he did so uh, greatly throughout his life. So when he built altars, he builds altars in recognition of his own condition before the Lord as a very, very needy man, but whose needs are met by the Lord God sovereignly, right? So after each great trial in Jacob's life, he builds an altar in recognition of that fact. Also in recognition of the abundant and unearned blessings of God that were sovereignly bestowed on him and his family, right? Unearned and abundant blessings of God sovereignly bestowed on him and his family. And so in recognition of that, Jacob builds altars. And not only that, it's all in Jacob's mind based upon, and, and towards the end of his life, he understands this more fully, but he's learning all along about the faithfulness of God regarding God's promises and covenants. Remember, they had been made, given and made to Abraham, right? Pointing forward to his offspring, his descendants. They were repeated and transferred over to Isaac in due time. And they pointed forward to his offspring and descendants, right? And then to Jacob, right? So when Jacob builds altars, they're in recognition of the faithfulness of God regarding his promises and covenants. As Jacob himself now has become the recipient, it takes Jacob a long time to fully realize the, uh, the meaning of that, but he does, right? We'll see how that all works out today a little more than we did before. And finally, when Jacob builds altars, he builds them in recognition that the God of Jacob's father and grandfather was indeed his own personal God. Remember, that was the great challenge of his life. 
really. So we're going to start out with that. <clears throat> um, as we uh, have Patty read for us in Genesis 28, verses 18 through 22. Would Jacob take the God of his father and the God of his grandfather as his own? Great question indeed. Patty? And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone, which I have set for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. Thank you. So this makes it also clear, it's crystal clear, that Jacob is in the trial of his life <laughs> with the Lord God, because uh, you know, the Lord God is not going to be in one God among many, right? This is not how it works. He is the only God, all right? And Jacob seems so tentative about it, does he not? Uh, and he even states conditions. If God will be with me, then he will be my God. That's just amazing. I mean, we, we wonder uh, how anyone with such lack of confidence in the Lord could ever be sovereignly blessed by God the way Jacob was. But the answer is on every page, right? How can it be? And that's why he builds the altars, right? As he learns this, one hard step at a time. So this will be the challenge for Jacob in this phase of his life. Will the God of his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham be his own personal God? Well, the Lord will provide him with a testimony as he indeed learns that <laughs> that is the very God <laughs> who has redeemed him personally, and he shall be his God. Oh, my, what a wonderful story, right? It's, it's one of the greatest stories in Scripture, of course, concerning the, uh, the sovereignty uh, and work of Almighty God to accomplish the program that he has set forth, right, and that he will finish in due time. Okay, so the Lord faithfully and sovereignly provided that testimony through trials and tribulations, doubts, discouragements, times of great foreboding and fear. But nevertheless, Almighty God worked as a refiner's fire, we could say, to bring forth something truly magnificent. And let's just see how that goes. So here we see this is right after, uh, you know, historically timeline, right after God says, go forth. And he, he needs to go forth. He's been sent forth to find a wife <clears throat> back in the land of their fathers, right? And remember, he uh, is on the edge of this uh, land, really, uh, of his fathers, <laughs> leaving the land of promise and uh, 
sleeps and has this incredible revelation given to him in a dream whereby angels are ascending and descending on a ladder from earth to heaven. And and Jacob is right in the center of it, right in the center of it. <clears throat> and so when he wakes up, he builds a monument and uh, uh, which is an altar unto the Lord God. Okay. He calls that place the place where God dwells. Says, surely God is in this place. So in Hebrew, the uh, the word Bethel means the house of God. All right. Now the whole story is going to come to a completion also back in Bethel many years later, as we shall see now as we proceed. <clears throat> but that's where we are starting here. Jacob builds an altar uh, and sacrifices there in what will later be called Bethel. All right. Okay, so what's the next thing? Uh, well, the next thing uh, after, now he goes off, he acquires a wife. No, not one, but two and 11 sons, okay, from the wives, the two wives and their handmaidens, okay? Uh, 11 sons have been brought forth uh, in the realm uh, ruled by Laban, okay? Jacob eventually is told by God to depart, and he does. And he comes back into the promised land, and we'll read how that goes <laughs> in these amazing, totally amazing verses. Verses 1 through 3 that I, I'd like uh, Lydia to read for us this morning in Genesis 32, verses 1 through 3. Lydia? So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahaniam. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau of his brother in the land of Seir and the country of Edom. Thank you, uh, Lydia. So what happens when Jacob comes into the promised land? The angels of God meet him. Oh, my. Do you think this might have a great effect on Jacob? What would it be like to be walking on the path? In this case, he has his whole family with him, right? <laughs> that God has blessed him with, right? And yet there's a problem that he has, and that has to do with Esau. For Jacob is in fear for his life and the life of his family. Right. But nevertheless, the angels of God meet him on the way. Oh, amazing. Completely amazing. But Jacob, as you see here, is still focused on Esau. But that's going to change rather quickly because <laughs> what happens next? Uh, oh, my. <clears throat> um, Jacob cries out to God. Um, this is in Genesis 32, verses 9 through 11, where we see, actually, as it turns out, this is the first recorded prayer 
of a person to God in the Bible. You thought there must have been many others, but uh, this is the first actual recording of a prayer as it's being made. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, the Lord which saidst unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. Uh, And verse 10, showing that Jacob is a broken man, really, (laughs) as he calls out to the Lord God. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. I think there's much more here than maybe we've seen before, but I'll leave that for another time, perhaps. But notice uh, that what Jacob is doing here is in a negotiation, (laughs) really. Verse 11, deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidst, so he's reminding the Lord of what the Lord has promised. Thou saidst, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob reminds the Lord of his promise to him to keep him safe and uh, multiply his offspring. My, my, with the angels of God meeting Jacob just before this, building another altar of sacrifice. Remember, he built an altar uh, to divide between him and Laban, right? His land, in other words, the land of promise, and Laban's. He built an altar there, and they sacrificed uh, because of a peace treaty that they made. <clears throat> so you would think that Jacob isn't very much focused on the promises of God. He's really focused more on protection, self-protection from whom uh, may turn against him uh, at some point in the future. And now, dreads the encounter with Esau, even though the angels of God had met with him. It's amazing, really. And so the next verses uh, give that that whole overview of exactly what happens that night. We looked at that last time. I'm not going to summarize that uh, for you again now, uh, although you really should go back and read it over and over there in Genesis chapter 32. So, Jacob, as a result of wrestling all night with the pre-incarnate Son of God, and as the Lord himself said, prevailing, having his name changed, therefore, from thief or supplanter, which is what Jacob means, to prince, Uh, prince with God and man, as the Lord renamed him, right? Israel, uh, with a new name and and a nearly broken hip, Jacob goes forth as Israel walking with the staff, for he could not walk otherwise, okay? So the mark of God was upon him. This became the mark of his authority as patriarch over the family. But also, of course, a mark of his life-transforming encounter 
with the pre-incarnate Son of God. Oh, so amazing, right? You can only assume that what will follow will be a great testament uh, of how God sovereignly worked in Jacob's life. And it was, it was, because uh, things are about to change forever in many unexpected ways for Jacob. The next chapter shows that when the meeting occurred with Esau, it was not at all as Jacob had expected because God had also worked sovereignly in Esau's life, not only in Jacob's, also in Esau. So, um, Elizabeth, would you read about how that worked there in Genesis 33, verses 1 through 4? And looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservant and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Thank you, Elizabeth. Yeah, I think we probably weep as well reading this great story about how God sovereignly worked. He had not only worked in Jacob's heart now to be called Israel, he had worked in Esau's heart. Uh, marvelous indeed to see how God can work in the human heart, right? To totally change the most hardened heart into a heart of flesh. But so be it. That's exactly what happened, right? Now this, as I said, would be a big turning point, and it is, because what does Jacob do? According to the next verses there in chapter 33, verse 19 he bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. You see, Jacob now knows the God of Abraham and Isaac, his fathers. It's no longer their God. It's now his testimony. This is the Lord God who has saved him. What a marvelous, marvelous story this is, right? Well, that's not the end of the story because now he's commanded to go back to Bethel. As I said, it would start in Bethel and end in Bethel in this phase of his life. And so he's commanded to go back to Bethel. <clears throat> and uh, Anne, I'd like you to read those three verses there in Genesis 35, verses 1 through 3. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau, thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his house, household and to all that were with him, 
Put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. Thank you, Ann. So he goes there and now rebuilds the altar that he had built before. (laughs) Okay. And at that time, the Lord renewed his covenant with Jacob. That covenant that had been passed from his fathers to him, right? What a story this is. Back to Bethel. Back to Bethel. That was the command. He was reminded again of those promises. And that's so important because Jacob's entire life is must be built upon the promises of God. And that's what we see happening again here as he again rebuilds that altar. You read of that in uh, chapter 35, verses uh, 7 through 15. And uh, I'll skip that for now since I think we we know the uh, the details pretty well as it is. But what I have taken you back into here is this whole story. So we see how throughout this entire phase of Jacob's life, it's an issue of trials and tribulations one step at a way until Jacob finally comes to know personally the God of his fathers, right? And the God of his fathers becomes his God, and therefore he can testify to that, and he does, by building altars. But that's not the end of the story by any means. God there in Bethel tells Jacob to be fruitful and multiply. How can this be? He already has 11 sons. But Jacob was fruitful and did multiply. Let's read of that. It's a sad, sad story indeed. As these words uh, hit us, really, I think, like lightning uh, out of a dark cloud, really. Um, And I'd like um, Linda to read those words for us. Genesis 35, verses 16 through 20. And they journeyed from Bethroth, and there was but a little way to come to Ephraim, And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Yanni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephraim, which is Bethlehem. Jacob set a pillar upon her grave, that is a pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. Thank you, Linda. Such a great trial of soul and spirit had now overtaken Jacob, and one might say that his life has been turned from a triumph as Jacob into a tragedy as Israel. That that would be so wrong to see it that way. For the rest of the story will reveal Jacob 
or Israel, as a man in league with Almighty God, as the trials of life produce in Jacob a confidence that only a victor, only a prince with God and man could have. Much time will pass and many chapters are devoted to it, but I don't want to look at them until next time. I rather today want us to focus in and finish up today with the end of the story. Next time we'll look at how the Lord sovereignly works to accomplish that end. So what is the end of the story? Rachel has just died bearing Jacob's 12th son, who will become a very special person to Jacob indeed, as we shall see next time, right? Being the the son, the last son of Rachel. So let us turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 48, verses 15 through 21. I'll read from there. And this is just before Jacob's death. Just before his death. He is blessing his sons. All right. Just before his death. Much time has passed that we'll look at next time. Verse 15, he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads and let my name be named on them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head and to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and Manasseh, and he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die. But God shall be with you and bring you again into the land of your fathers. It is a resurrection faith. A resurrection faith that Abraham had, Isaac had, and Jacob had, right? God shall be with you and bring you again into the land of your fathers. He says this because where are they? They are in Egypt. (laughs) So how in the world could this be the end of Jacob's life, considering all 
that would lead up to it. I'd like um, Gail to read these precious other verses here, and then we'll look to see what happened to cause the greatest trials of all in Jacob's life that would ultimately lead to this great, great blessing. So, Gail, would you read for us Genesis 49, uh, verses 22 through 26? Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd the stone of Israel. Even by the God of thy father who shall help thee, and by the Almighty who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Oh, thank you, Gail. Well, what more can be said, really? Uh, through much trial of soul and spirit, Jacob, now Israel, has walked with the Lord until his very end of life. Bring forth much fruit is what the Lord had exhorted just before Benjamin was born. And then there is the fruit through Joseph and uh, his sons, right? Through much tribulation, his sons Ephraim and Manasseh have been born in Egypt of an Egyptian woman, the daughter of Potiphar, you will recall. And now they've been blessed and given prophetically a heritage for even nations would come of them in God's due timing. But how can that be, we, under, we wonder, considering what is written in chapter 37 and following, where we will continue our studies next time? How can it be? After they had lived a short time in Bethel, everything changed. And I'd like us to see that. Next time we'll follow through in our studies there. But going back to chapter 37, we now see the most amazing thing. That God would use, ultimately, not only to bless Joseph, but to save the nation. Oh, my. Okay, Genesis 37. Reading for you there, verses 1 through 7, first of all. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. And he mentions them. Okay. Verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream. 
and told it his brethren, and they hated him yet more. And he said unto them, Hear, I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed. Now, Joseph's 17 years old when he's dreamt this dream. Okay. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet more because of his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it unto his brethren and said, Behold, I've dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? And his brethren envied him. But his father observed the saying. The words were stuck in Jacob's heart, right? He wouldn't forget them for a long, long time. Okay? So the story develops. I'll skip down to verse uh, 18. Uh, the sons are off in the field. They're shepherds, you know. And his brethren saw him, saw Joseph afar off, even before he came near unto them, and they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. And it came to pass, verse 23, when Joseph was come to his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors. And they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread. And they lifted up their eyes and looked. And behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels, bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh. And his brethren were content. And there passed by Midianite merchantmen. And they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. Well, The brethren knew what had happened. Reuben didn't. He wasn't there. Came back, finds out that Joseph's no longer in the pit. 
And so <laughs> he thinks the worst, right? So he takes Joseph's coat, verse 31, kills a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood and sends the coat of many colors to their father and says, this have we found. We know not whether it be thy son's coat or no. But he knew it, Jacob knew it. And he said, it is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him, and Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I will go down to the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. So, again and again, we see how God's sovereign plan regarding the promised seed of the woman, because that's the ultimate promise, right? How that has been further generation by generation. But now Joseph, through whom the promise must be fulfilled in various ways, ultimately, right? Joseph has been sold as a slave in Egypt. Humanly speaking, nothing could have been worse. But as we have seen from the end of Genesis, with God, all things are possible. Next time, Lord willing, we'll complete this survey of this great theme in Genesis, the sovereignty of God revealed on every page. How hath God worked? <laughs> we should know it's written on every page, right? Praise God. God is sovereign. And he keeps his children with his hand of mercy and grace. Amen? Through every trial, through every tribulation. And as we can see, many have their faith strengthened through these hard times, like Jacob did. Amen and amen. Well, there are many applications to our lives today, are there not? in all of this, should be greatly encouraging for all of us to see that God is faithful. He will keep his children until the promised end, right? He is faithful and sovereign. Amen? Well, are there any questions or comments before we close today? Hi, Jen, this is Lewis. Thank you for sharing the message. It's really wonderful. And, you know, we, we read Bible so many times, but still, you know, this passage you shared earlier, um, Genesis 28, in terms of Jacob vowed about saying, if God will be with me and will keep me this way, yeah. that God will give me the bread to eat and remnant to put on and I come again to my father's house in peace, then mm -hmm. shall the Lord be my God. <laughs> <laughs> this is mind-boggling, you know, a totally. usurper and deceiver like Jacob. 
Yeah. And, and had to make such a condition with yeah. God. You know, if you offer me such and such and such, then you shall be my God. Yeah. You know, oftentimes we <laughs> look at God's attribute, you know, many, many of them. Um, then we think of, you know, God's ruling in a millennial kingdom. You know, Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron. Now, this is a huge contrast comparing to how God had put out with Jacob, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and given all the conditions. And, you know, with with this, a deceivers made such a command. And yet, God's gentleness is really unparalleled. And he was willing to put out with this to demonstrate his love and mercy toward this sinner. And of course, later on, decades later, finally, Jacob realized what God has always been with him and yeah. softened his heart. It's such a wonderful story for us to see how God has changed our heart. Amen. Amen. Thanks for sharing, Lewis. It's such a wonderful story. It should be so encouraging. To see how God has worked. And so therefore, we have some indication that he'll have the same kindness and gentleness to us. But even more, his abundant grace, right? His abundant grace, because that's how he's ruling today. But see, they were not under the law, right? Remember, they were not under the law. They were living under the promise. That was the dispensation of promise. Very different from the law that would follow. Very different from the kingdom, which also is a rule of law, right? Praise God. Any other comments today before we close? Well, Lord bless all of you. Let's let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we sometimes are overwhelmed when we open your word and carefully compare scripture with scripture and uh, see how you have worked in the past and read of how you will work in the future. There's much, much prophecy, so many pages pointing to the future, how you will fulfill your many promises to Israel. And there will be an elect uh, eventually in due time. And they will obey and they will bow. Finally, their hearts having been softened. So, Father, thank you that you've worked in our lives sovereignly to draw us Gentiles, for the most part Gentiles, unto yourself. What a blessing you've been to us and continue to to be. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd bless us in these days that to us seem very dark, but in comparison to what stands written, they're, they're really nothing to be compared. So, Father, thank you again for the great blessings of your grace, and may we never forget them. May we grow in our understanding of them and in our knowledge of you and in our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we'll thank you in Christ's name, Heavenly Father. Amen and amen.